300 years ago, our lives were very different. We had labouring jobs, there were no screens to keep us on the couch. But today, we are much less active, and more than half of us live what you'd call a sedentary lifestyle. So how have our bodies adjusted to that massive physical slowdown? Today, we meet a researcher who is an expert in metabolism and is working every day to improve lives. You're listening to Medical Minds, the podcast that takes you inside the labs at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. I'm your host, Dr. Vivian Richter, and with me here is Professor Catherine Samaras, head of the Clinical Obesity, Nutrition and Adipose Biology Lab at Garvin and endocrinologist at St. Vincent's Hospital, Sydney. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Vivian. It's great to be here. Catherine, I heard your love for science didn't start at school or university, but in your dad's back shed. Is that right? Can you tell us about that? Vivian, you're absolutely right. So picture this, the late 1970s, suburban backyard. Everybody has one of these garden sheds. It's the repository of all of the school projects that mum won't throw away. All the tools are in there and there's a great big bench. And the radio's on. There's, you know, the rock stars of the late 70s playing. And then we've got the rock stars of science there as well. Marie Curie is there, Alexander Fleming, Louis Pasteur, you know, think of fourth, fourth class school projects in science. And so I had set up this little lab in the back shed and I had been given a microscope at some point as a Christmas present. And so everything was underneath there and we were mixing. It was a mortar and pestle and we were mixing all sorts of things that we found in the backyard, smashing them to bits, seeing what they were made of looking under the microscope and seeing what the structure of various things were. It wasn't a great microscope. I've used much better since, but it was the start. And filtered in there along with stories of spies and adventures and pirate stories was this sort of fantasy around science and the world contained within it. So these rock stars of science, you had read about them? You were inspired by them? Oh, it was through school. Um, school projects, and then we were allowed, you know, pick one of these scientists. So there was Marie Curie. She was the only woman that they presented. So the whole notion of how science is really about cooking, you start with an experiment and it takes you somewhere. But sometimes that experiment doesn't go to plan, like in her situation, and that leading to discovery in the same way that Alexander Fleming his discovery of penicillin, that was a fortuitous accident as well. And that whole, how fortune plays a role in science. There's so much that's well thought through. And then there's a little bit of fortune. There's a little bit of um, serendipity and there's a little bit of pure luck. And then there's pure accident. And I love that there's that spontaneity in science. Did you realize you wanted to be a scientist one day? Look, I probably was much more inspired by 99 in Get Smart. So that's really showing my age. But, um, you know, I thought she had a fantastic life. I liked the sports car. I liked her spy lifestyle, the travel, you know, who didn't like smart himself. Um, there was, so there was all of this other fantasy going on at the same time. There was the science and that was really fascinating. But then there was adventure and other stories. So, you know, I probably thought of the spy life is for me, which of course I'm a very conservative person, not at all. But um, it was science that really caught my attention in the longer term. 
And then there were many more opportunities as one progresses through schooling to find science and explore science and really start to understand the, the universes that are contained within it. This idea of putting things under the microscope, studying things in great detail, is this what led you to your career as a clinician researcher in a way? I think definitely. I, I've always been fascinated by how do things work? How do they not work? Because most human diseases where things don't work properly. So understanding what can go awry, what pathways can take you one way versus another way. What is fascinating about the human body is how we have our genes. And we think that that is like a blueprint. So much can change after that. We know about epigenetics and how we can modify through environmental influences the way our genes show themselves. So even when you have the blueprint, there is so much potential for malleability and change and to change the trajectory and course of what we think of as a set course. And these are lessons for life, really. They're things that inspire me in every way in understanding what happens to disease and how can I actually change this person's pathway so that they have better quality of life and better health in the longer term. Can you tell us what an endocrinologist does? An endocrinologist is a hormone doctor. Now, when we talk hormones, people think about ovarian hormones, they think about testosterone, they think about the thyroid, but there are so many other hormones and the major hormone in endocrinology is insulin. And insulin obviously looks after glucose regulation, but it has other effects on cell aging, cell proliferation and cancer, aspects of building muscle. So I see people who have common conditions like diabetes and thyroid disease, osteoporosis, adrenal conditions, pituitary conditions. I look after thyroid cancer patients. So some of the pituitary tumors, the adrenal tumors, the thyroid tumors, they can be cancerous tumors or they can be benign. So I look after their care and some of these conditions can be fixed. And so many of these conditions are long-term conditions where I, I walk a pathway with patients for decades. That sounds extremely busy. Can you tell us what is involved in your day-to-day? -day? I sometimes joke that one should have a number of clones. I'd like six clones so I could then do things as fully as I possibly could. There's the patient side of life, and that intrudes 24 hours 7. I have my set clinics, and for those, you have to be in the zone. It's me and one person, and I'm trying to understand how I can improve their quality of life and change what their likelihood is going to be of having a disease, experiencing a disease, changing that process. And that can run from 7.30 in the morning till 7.30 at night, sometimes later. Then I put my research hat on, and that's my protected time in the laboratory. And there I run studies. We do work that involves people's samples, um, human samples, and that can be tissue, it can be blood. We're doing a study at the moment that's looking at the brain and brain metabolism and brain health. And so that involves a very specialised magnetic resonance imaging of the brain to look at not only structure but look at function of the brain the connectivity of one neuron to another. It's just so fascinating what technology allows us to do. The study is, involves an intervention. It involves giving the medication metformin to prevent brain aging. So it's 
the nuts and bolts of what how the drug works. How does it interact with this particular participant? Is this person experiencing any side effects? And so that has its humanistic element. It also has quite a lot of due diligence and paperwork. So we have to make sure everything is done correctly as in a clinical trial. There are the ethics that need to be continuously thought about and are we meeting our ethical obligations? And we take those things very, very seriously. So there are aspects to this that are really quite important. So you work with patients every week. What are the implications of these conditions that people are coming to you with? If we talk about obesity and diabetes, common conditions that I treat, both of those have consequences long-term. For example, obesity is probably the most common cause of cancer in Australia today. Diabetes is the most common cause of kidney failure, renal transplantation and dialysis in Australia. It's the commonest cause of blindness. It's a very common cause of amputation. And all of these conditions can be prevented if you get in early and even prevent diabetes or at least achieve remission or excellent control of diabetes. And you can avoid all these devastating consequences. One of my inspirations was seeing a man in his 60s who had diabetes and he had a festering diabetic ulcer on his foot. It couldn't have been cured with months of antibiotics and surgeries and he needed a baloney amputation. And seeing the impact of the amputation on him, his mobility, his independence, his struggle afterwards to deal with the prosthesis and to regain his independence taught me how important it was to try and prevent diabetes getting to that stage. And it can be done, early intervention for prevention, as well as when people actually have these conditions to give them the best possible care. Do we know enough about these conditions to prevent them at this point? So one of the things I've been fascinated about is how weight management can actually turn around pre-diabetes to normal glucose metabolism and even diabetes back to pre-diabetes or normal glucose metabolism. So addressing the obesity is a very big factor in changing the course of diabetes. Not all people with diabetes are obese. Many people are lean. They have, there are multiple forms of diabetes. One form is brought on by obesity. Other forms are clearly genetic and people can have diabetes when they're even very lean. However, a good proportion of the people that we see day to day have got weight issues and a 5 kg weight reduction can make such a difference to their diabetes. Not only the markers that we use to know that we're being successful in our treatment, blood glucose control, blood cholesterol control, making sure blood pressure is right, making sure physical exercise is there, ensuring the quality of the diet. We can make sure that those things are fine. But to really change it and get that weight off and keep it off for the long term makes such a difference. And that has economic benefit for governments as well. Costs less when people don't have their heart attack. It costs less if people can stay in the workforce and participate at a productive, meaningful level, economically, socially, but also for people's mental health. So there are broad brush benefits from nabbing a condition like diabetes, especially really early. So from your research, what have you discovered about how we can better prevent diabetes and these terrible associated impacts? So getting in early 
with obesity management is important. Being effective in obesity management, whether that's with medications or with surgery, if necessary, if lifestyle changes haven't helped people. Getting in there early with the right kinds of medications. And so one of my big research interests is metformin. Metformin is derived from French lilac, the flower. It's been around for 70 years, so it has an incredibly robust um, safety profile. We give it to pregnant women when they have gestational diabetes. We give it to young women and children who have got polycystic ovary syndrome. We use it to treat overweight children with really long-term safety data. So metabolism is closely linked to many other functions in the body. How does that work? All cells rely upon energy. Just like a car, if you don't have petrol in the tank, the car is not going to go. All of our cells require fuels, and the predominant fuel is glucose, and the predominant fuel needs insulin to work. Fatty acid is a very important fuel as well. And within all of our cells, the mitochondria are like the powerhouses that make sure all cell functions happen. And for that, body needs glucose and it requires fatty acids. So these two fuels are the things that actually make our cells work. But an imbalance in these fuels actually leads to cellular dysfunction and can lead to cell death as well. And one of the really interesting things about obesity is how nutrient toxicity actually starts to operate. So if the if cells are overwhelmed with energy supply, the nutrients start to cause toxicity. And this occurs in different subcellular parts of our cells, the mitochondria, for example, the endoplasmic reticulum, the sort of the, the, the structural parts of our cells. I don't know how much the audience remembers of their, their biology lessons. These little parts of the machine of every cell require good fuel. And just like any engine to operate and run smoothly, it needs the right balance of fuel. So these imbalances in metabolism that you're talking about, the changes that you see, they lead to long-term impacts? And you can see these rather quickly. So for example, if a cell is overwhelmed with carbohydrate molecules, there are special receptors on the cells that actually can turn on inflammation in a huge way through our immune system, but also through cells secreting hormones that are called adipokines, some of which actively promote cell inflammation. And when you have cell inflammation, it's like a war zone. There is death and destruction and premature aging of cells. And so if we look at various aging processes, inflammation is implicated very heavily in these. If we look at atherosclerosis, the hardening of arteries, inflammation plays a very prominent part there as well. If we look at brain aging, inflammation is in implicated in the development of dementia. Obesity drives that because it's an excess of nutrient and it's acting at those cells to start that inflammatory process and the wearing out of our cells. So you basically then start to lose cells and that's when you start to get cell dropout. Now cell dropout occurs and you lose function. When you start losing function, that's where you start to see the pancreas fail and diabetes developing. It's where one might see the heart starting to fail. It's when the brain function starts to fail. And that's when you start to see cognitive impairment, cognitive decline, and eventually dementia. 
So those metabolic processes play a role in every single pathway we have in the body. And that's where your research comes in because you're looking at a way to potentially prevent or slow down dementia from developing. That's right, Vivian. We're trying to slow down cognitive decline in people who have got a mild cognitive impairment already, repurposing a medication called metformin that we've talked about, the medication that can prevent diabetes and is first line to treat diabetes. And what we found in the Sydney Memory and Aging Study was that people with diabetes on this medication had much lower rates of dementia. Now, diabetes doubles or triples the risk of developing dementia. And what we observed was that people had almost 80% lower rates of dementia if they were on metformin for their diabetes compared to people who were not. And it was not related to the severity of diabetes. Some of these people were just diet controlled and had really good diabetes control, but they weren't on metformin. So we're exploring how metformin acting through metabolic and inflammatory pathways can actually turn down that brain aging process and halt cognitive decline and try and prevent its relentless progression to more moderate and extreme cognitive impairment. Through your Met Memory study, what are you hoping to achieve? We're hoping that metformin slows down brain aging in people who already have mild cognitive impairment. If we can do that, we will have a super safe therapy that is available for prescribing today. How has our metabolism evolved over time? So don't forget we started as hunter-gatherers. We wouldn't have thought twice about crossing a range of mountains to hunt for food. We would have had seasonal access to food and there would have been periods of seasonal privation. The crops failed. Perhaps there was a war or a blockade and we didn't have access for maybe a year or two to the amount of food we generally had access to. We were very much involved with the cycles of the earth, the spring-winter season, and there would be times where there would be food, summer, autumn, and then times where there was nothing. And so our body has evolved over millennia so that we can serve energy when we find it. And so we are fantastic banks for fat and energy if we access it. And we've been kept safe because of just the natures of cycle and life and our work and our environment. But now, if you shift forward, we find ourselves in places where we just press buttons and the whole of our food can appear. We didn't sweat a single bead of, th of sweat, but we're also used to seeing these huge plates of food. And on those plates are energy-dense food. And the energy-dense foods are actually really cheap these days. And so processing of food the presentation of small morsels of very energy-dense food, the capacity of human beings, our wiring is to eat everything in front of us. It's not because of what grandma went through in the war. It's actually we are wired that when we see food, we secrete hormones that make us seek and destroy all of it that is in front of us. And that is human nature. Everybody does this. We are wired. We don't even have to swallow the food before hormones are being secreted to store the energy. So we are magnificent energy storage machines and we now have ready access to cheap, energy-dense foods. And so, of course, we eat. We've been encouraged to snack. We've been encouraged to graze. 
and there are market forces that are involved in that, but it leads to energy overconsumption. And on the other hand, we're not moving. So the energy balance is very much in the favour of storage, 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 and hold on to that energy because maybe there's a famine coming. They're our genes. And then the environment is providing so much energy with very little opportunity to expend any energy. How many people are trapped in the car for an hour or up to two hours per day commuting to their workplace where they might be chained to a desk for eight hours? We barely move. Our only, the only thing that moves are our fingers on the keyboard and our mouths on Zoom meetings. So what do you think is the answer to somebody listening to this who might think, well, that's me. I'm stuck in Zoom meetings all day. I'm stuck in the car. So there are lots of things we can try and do. The first is contain our food intake make our plates smaller, not have visual triggers or stimuli where we're getting food impulse signals all the time. Um, We have to make our lives more physically inefficient. Let's move the printer so that we have to walk some distance to pick something up off the printer. How about making steps? Why don't we accrue our steps? Everybody has monitors. Are we getting 10,000 steps per day? What am I doing for my fun? Why am I just sitting more watching some stuff on TV or at the computer? Why aren't I out doing something? Why aren't I playing sport with my friends? Why aren't I going for walks with my friends? Why am I going to restaurants constantly and just sitting for more time of the day? Maybe we can cook together. Maybe we can go on a picnic. So is it just lifestyle? Is that all we have to change? So lifestyle is the bit that we can change. The bit that we can't change is our genetic predisposition. We just know by looking at our parents and our grandparents whether we have those genes for magnificent energy conservation in a small dose or a very, very big dose. And so we can prevent by being proactive and preventing ourselves becoming sedentary, preventing ourselves carrying an extra couple of kilos through lifestyle intervention. What's really fascinating is if you have got genetic predisposition to be overweight, if you have genetic predisposition to have type 2 diabetes, that environmental factors can epigenetically change how those genes manifest so that you can prevent diabetes, for example, by being active. So everybody who's got parents or grandparents with type 2 diabetes needs to be as active as they possibly can. They also have to modify their diet, knowing that if they eat like mum and dad, they're going to end up like mum and dad. So our future is there. We can see it by looking at our parents, um, by our grandparents, and using that information, we can individualize for our own self and go, right, that needs to be my pathway. You mentioned epigenetically. What is that? Epigenetics is the science of how we can either turn up our genetic inheritance or turn it down. So, for example, if we look at some of the genes for cancer, BRCA, for example, is a gene that causes breast and ovarian cancer. But in many families, if you have the gene, you don't get the condition. And so it can often skip generations and appear in a granddaughter, whereas it's avoided the mother or the father, and it's affected a grandparent or a great-grandparent. Why those genes are turned off is that they get turned off epigenetically. And the science of how you can do that is fascinating. We know diet can affect epigenetic regulation of gene expression. We know exercise has a big role, and that's been shown best for people with diabetes. 
was the Harvard doctor's study that showed this. If you have two brothers and their father had diabetes and one is active and one is not active, the one that's active doesn't get diabetes. The inactive one does. Can we talk about what is happening at the cellular level? You've studied epigenetics of fat cells. Can you tell me about that research? This was research with one of the premier epigeneticists in the universe who we happen to also have at the Garvin Institute, um, Professor Susan Clark, with Sue's group of scientists who are epigeneticists. We were able to take fat from people that were undertaking um, an uncomplicated surgery who had diabetes, did not have diabetes, and who were overweight or not overweight. And we were able to look at where our fat cells actually come from and what the sequence in the development of that fat cell was going to be. So, for example, what we found was that the cells that become our belly fat, and people understand belly fat as the apple shape carrying that extra fat in the waistline, they are different to the type of fat cells you find elsewhere in the body and that embryologically the genes that are regulated start to change at the embryonic level. So from the time we are in the womb, fat stores are being started to be regulated and set on a certain path. Now, other work we know from maternal nutrition during pregnancy is that if women are obese at the beginning of their pregnancy, or if they gain a stack of weight during their pregnancy, by which I mean like 20 plus kilos, that the baby will be born overweight and at five years it's on a trajectory for being an overweight child. So very much in the maternal environment, you can actually set the genes for the embryo and what's going to happen when it's born and what's going to happen when it's five years old. So this is an example of maternal nutrition affecting the offspring that is epigenetically modulated. So you can have certain genes for obesity, but then if those genes are exposed to environments of supernutrition, then you magnify the genetic effect. With the work that you're doing with all this research, do you think we'll all live to 100? Many of us are actually reaching 100. Now, there are about 5,500 centenarians living in Australia currently, and it's fascinating to think about how they got there. What were the conditions that they lived in? Obviously, they lived in during the war, they lived during a depression, they've lived through times of privation, they've also survived the periods of excess that we've had in the last 50 years. I think it is possible for people to live a long life with their faculties intact, meaning perfect brain health, their cognition is sharp, they're wise, good heart health, they can walk, they can exercise, normal metabolism, and be free of cancer, because we have examples of that all the time. Nutrition plays a huge role in getting there. And if we look at the data that we have, and that's admittedly from observational studies, we know that the Mediterranean-style diet is associated with longer life. And if we break down the nuts and bolts of the Mediterranean diet, it's getting our fatty acids from things like olive oil and from fish and limited meat. It's getting 
plenty of fresh vegetables every day. Notice I didn't say fruit. Fruit is full of sugar and it's important we get some fruit, but not a lot of fruit every single day. It's important we look at the Mediterranean lifestyle, that physical activity has played a very large part of those activities. And I'm not suggesting that we become hunter-gatherers, though some people choose to, and that's wonderful. But we have to break down the sedentariness of our current lifestyle and be more active in different ways. We can also learn from the data on fasting. There's really great data that people who fast regularly and for religious reasons live a lot longer. And that's when you even control for things like smoking and alcohol consumption. So these are not just people who um, are fasting. These are people who also smoke and drink and do a whole range of other things. But periodic fasting actually upregulates, we know from cellular experiments and small animal experiments, worms, rodents, that you periodically calorie restrict fast animals. They will live a lot longer. And the way that that works is it upregulates all of our antioxidant production. So at a genetic level, we respond to that caloric restriction by upping the gene expression of genes involved in mopping up radicals, free radicals and oxidative stress products that actually cause inflammation and erode our body systems. So the fasting side is, is fascinating as well as we start to scientifically understand how that operates. I think the other factor with longevity, and it's really important, is the cognitive side. Because if you get to a 100, you want a body that works perfectly, but you also want the brain that can drive the body around to do all the things you want to do. And understanding mental health is really important. One of the challenges that older people have is loneliness and the way that social isolation plays in to cognitive decline. That's really important. Simple things like being able to hear properly plays into cognitive decline. If you don't hear, you become increasingly socially isolated. You don't pick up on cues in the environment and people start to actually have more accelerated cognitive decline associated with that. The time-restricted eating has recently been shown to be very beneficial for people who are trying to lose weight. What's interesting in all of this is how our circadian rhythms fit into that time-restricted eating pattern. Because we, at a hormonal level, sync with the daylight phase. We actually do our eating during the daylight. And our metabolism works best if we eat during daylight hours. We're not meant to eat through the dark phase. And so when you think about the the hormones that are involved in the circadian rhythm, it involves hormones like cortisol for insulin. Our insulin sensitivity changes through the day according to the light and dark phase. So much of our food storage works best if we eat during daylight hours. So Catherine, what motivates you in your research? My patients do. So I see what happens to them. I want to understand better what the mechanisms of disease are. And I want to be able to offer them better solutions than what we have currently. I also think our patients show us the natural history of a condition and we can learn so much from an individual's experience. One of the privileges of being a a clinician researcher is that I get to see what's happening in the, the hospital, in the consulting room, and I can take that to the lab. And that is a fundamental part, I think, of breaking down 
the conditions that we treat and really understanding and then being able to translate that back to a meaningful intervention in the clinic. So that's what I love about the research that I do and it's what inspires me to keep writing grants in the middle of the night and reviewing papers in the middle of the night and doing the stuff that actually is what makes up the research and makes the research productive and and fruitful. So, you know, that's what drives me. It's coming back to the patient. Catherine, before we let you get back to the lab, it's time for the Fast Five. What do you do in your downtime? I garden. I grow vegetables. I'm an enthusiastic vegetable grower. I would like to be self-sufficient in some of our vegetables if we possibly can. And then I pickle them as well. I love fermented foods. It's so good for the gut microbiome. So the prodigious um, vegetables that manage to grow in my garden get pickled if they're not consumed immediately. Favourite music? The Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams. And I'll tell you why. I find it absolutely peaceful and inspiring. And it's basically a bird flying up into the summer sky. And so it represents freedom. It represents the ability to soar. And it's just the most beautiful, tranquil piece of music. That's wonderful. Secret skills? Probably what I do in the garden. Um, Give me an axe. Give me a hoe. Yes, big machinery. (laughs) Hand hand yielded, of course, so you can chop down something. Give me something to chop down. Your hands on, Catherine. It's all that time in the shed. What's the most challenging thing you've ever had to do? I do lots of challenging things. So it's hard to say what the most challenging is. I can say what challenges me, and that was being a young mum with a screamer who I couldn't get to settle. My goodness, the adrenaline was going in a way that it doesn't when, I, you know, I'm managing somebody where, you know, their transplant's failing and they've had, and they've had a cardiac arrest. That doesn't raise my heartbeat. But a bad day with children often did. <laughs> I must say. Um, so that, that challenged me, <laughs> scarred me. Um, Kids are another level actually, of challenge, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> I hope my daughter never listens to this. <laughs> Fantastic. What's your dream holiday, Catherine? My dream holiday would be walking in the mountains somewhere, high mountains. So the Alps in Switzerland, the Dolomites, and, and just, you know, with a backpack and 12 hours of daylight ahead. Professor Catherine Samaras, thank you so much for speaking with us on Medical Minds today. It's been such a pleasure having you. Vivian, it's been a privilege. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Catherine's research or the work we do at Garvin, head over to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Dr. Vivian Richter. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging.